0: You are listening to a sermon from In-Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In-Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. I um, chose what seminary to go to based on uh, one professor, one relationship I had. Um, I took a class, my very first seminary class uh, that was uh, at a remote location, so I hadn't committed to go to a seminary, but I fell in love with the way that this professor taught church history. And uh, this, his name is Frank James. He um, has a Ph.D. from Oxford, incredibly brilliant guy, and I was captivated because I had studied history in college, but this was more than just uh, dates and names and places. He taught history Uh, in a way that learning history was a form of worship, that learning history began to be, for the very first time, devotional, because he showed the way that God had uh, drawn history out. He showed the way that God had been working in miraculous ways, and sometimes just simple ways, in the events that I had known about for years and years. Um, But he didn't just teach church history. He taught uh, lessons on the spiritual classics and devotional life of the pastor, and he made us read these books that were incredibly difficult. And when I say difficult, I don't mean impenetrable, but I mean very painful readings, because what he wanted us to do is he wanted us to learn to be pastors who were compassionate, Pastors who could have empathy on broken lives and broken situations and not just bring theory, not just bring a a doctrinal statement or a verse and expect that to heal everything. He wanted us to see the real brokenness uh, that exists in in believers' lives as well as lives outside. Um, He made us read A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis's wrestling with his wife uh, Joy's uh, death with bone cancer. He made us read Nicholas Wolterstorff's Lament for a Son. Um, and I can't read that without weeping about every, other page, about every other page. His son, Eric, died in a climbing accident when he was 25. And this is uh, Wolterstorff's wrestling with, well, what do I do now? How do I pray now? I prayed for him before. Um, and he made us read Ellie Wiesel's Night, which is in the curriculum list of many... Um, many high schools, and this is his wrestling as a, as a Jew of where is God in the concentration camps? Where was God when I was at Auschwitz in Buchenwald? And this narrative in Night, if you've read the book, has his earthly father by his side, but yet this conspicuous absence of the heavenly father, of God. And Elie Wiesel actually writes about a, a mock trial that they have for God Where were you? Why were you not here? Now, I read those three books in a class in 2005 with Frank James, and we talked about it uh, and, and cried together and wrestled with these things. And then in 2006, Frank James' brother, Kelly, froze to death about 50 miles from here on Mount Hood. You probably remember that he was in a group of hikers, and he was in an ice cave, Uh, and thousands of people were praying for him. He's actually a Christian as well. And he froze to death because the weather was so bad that they couldn't get the helicopters and the rescue crew in. They couldn't find him. And so six months, nine months after reading all these books together, he's having to wrestle personally with what do I do now? How do I pray? Is God approachable to me anymore? Is he who I thought he was? Now, in a purely material world, we would say, well, that's tragic, sad, unfortunate, but we don't have a vantage point from which to say that's wrong. Something is wrong about that situation. There's nothing to make sense of. It's just the the way that the world is. Now, alternatively, um, theists and Christians have come to a number of conclusions. We're going to talk about some, but they tend to have fallen off on one of two sides. One is that they begin to kind of um, uh, change Christian theology, believe that God exists, but he doesn't really appear omnipotent. He doesn't really appear to be in control. Uh, And then the other side is that, you know, everything God does is good, and so we just need to put on a smile in the midst of horrific events. Now, one of those diminishes the possibility of a future redemption, because if God is not in control, if he's not trustworthy, how can he bring the events to pass where this world could be redeemed? The other one diminishes the brokenness, that, that we would see grief as sort of a spiritual shortcoming, that you're not spiritual enough, you're not mature enough, and that's why you think this is a terrible event. Well, David's answer is neither of those. David's answer is honest about the brokenness of the world, honest about grief, but he's also hopeful about redemption. There are, as we read Psalm 13, we see profoundly painful things that will bring disorientation into all of our lives. Now, notice David's situation. He says two things. There's two types of alienation that are going on in David's life. There's alienation first from God. He says, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? There's this lingering sense of abandonment that you probably have felt as you've gone through a difficult time in your life, that you feel like, where is God? I have committed to him. I believe in his promises, and yet, where is he? He doesn't seem to be showing up in these circumstances. He feels a severe alienation from God, but he also feels an alienation from himself. He says, I wrestle with my thoughts. Now, the Hebrew is very difficult here. But basically what it's trying to convey is that David, the king of Israel, God's chosen anointed one, is confused, he's troubled, he's distressed, he has this internal conflict that he's wrestling with, I believe, but yet God is not here. How do I reconcile those things? Day after day I have sorrow, he says. This blanket of sorrow has descended upon him, this cloud of despair And if you've suffered through something, you know what he's talking about. There's this impenetrable blackness, this darkness that you can't seem to get through. Day after day, there's sorrow. And what does he question? What does he challenge God? God, how long are you going to allow this to stand? How long will this blanket of darkness, this sorrow, exist? Now, he wants, obviously, an end to his personal struggle. He wants God to end that? How long until this ends? How long until I'm no longer on the run, until my son is restored to me? How long until you end my personal struggle? But the question implies so much more. David knows things are not the way they're supposed to be, and he is saying, God, how long until you end it all? How long until you bring an end to all tragedy and all injustice, not just my personal situation? Now, most of us would concede that there's something awry in the world. There's something wrong. There's some darkness. There's some evil that's present in people's hearts. And we have different explanations as to why and different theses on how to make things better, how to change the world. And we all have, whether we're Christians or not, shalls and shall nots. We all have things that we say, thou shall not and thou shall. This is good. This is bad. But without a constant, without some transcendent norm, without a God who speaks and says, thou shall and thou shall not, how do we have the right? From which vantage point do we say, this is wrong, that is evil, and this is good and should be rewarded? It's just that we universalize our personal views on the matter, or at best, we have a consensus from our community, majority rule, the majority says that this is evil and so we need to work against that and this is good so we need to reward it now the bible takes the problem of evil very seriously in fact in many ways the whole bible is the story of god god's answering the problem of evil We talk about the gospel here at InTown, not in terms of the propositional statement of what you have to agree with, sort of the, the minimum required doctrine to become a Christian. That's part of the gospel, but the gospel is the whole story of the scriptures. The gospel is creation, fall, redemption. It's from the opening pages to the end. It's the story of how God is redeeming his people. Creation, he creates it good. He creates the world without tears, without sadness, without loss, without sorrow, but he makes it in such a way, as we talked about last night, that mankind is invested with dignity, invested with a decisional capacity, and at some point, mankind chooses to walk away, to abandon God, and at that point, alienation creeps in. At that point, sorrow begins. You see, Adam and Eve's sorrow sorrowful about their sin, about there's this, now this impasse that seems to be present between them and God, in between each other. And then, however, God does not leave it there. He doesn't just say, exit the garden, there is now a curse, but he says, one day I will redeem. Creation, fall, redemption. The Bible wrestles with the problem of evil from the very beginning pages to the very end. And this recasts David's question. How long? How long until that final redemption will come? We've seen creation. We believe in it. We've seen the fall. We see its effects. But how long until the redemption will come? How long until your promises give meaning to my pain, God? Now, God's answer to David is at one level very obvious and on another level very perplexing. Because what he says throughout the scriptures is that I will raise up a final king. I will raise up a king that is better than you, David, that will defend his people, that will care for his people, shepherd his people. And David would have no problem understanding that, of course. That sounds right. But then he says this king will not be a victorious warrior with a sword who will mete out God's justice, but he will be a king who also laments, a king who weeps, a king who suffers, on behalf of his people. Now, of course, that future grace is hard to cling to in the midst of trial. In the midst of suffering, it's nice to have that promise, but how does it matter? What does it matter? And that's why David prays. That's the point of the psalm. He goes from disorientation to supplication, to prayer. He says, light up my eyes. Now, in the Psalms, we have 150 Psalms in Scripture. Seventy of them are considered songs of lament. And there's many portions of the others that are, have lamenting verses in it. But 70, almost half of the approved prayer book of the faith, is psalms of lament, poetry of lament, poetry of questioning, what is the matter? God, when are you going to get with it? God, follow your own promises. Put an end to the suffering, 70 of them. And this implies two things. One is that pain, hardship, and suffering is going to be a regular feature of our lives. And then secondly, that praying in the midst of pain should be a regular feature of our spirituality. There is a meaning behind the suffering. There is a reason for it. It is mysterious, and God has not given us, granted us full disclosure, but there is meaning that is behind it. It may not be fully satisfactory, but on one hand, you can't say that God is big enough, powerful enough to control all things and eradicate suffering, and yet on the other hand say that he can't possibly have an answer big enough for the reason that suffering is allowed to continue. You see, you can't say both of those things at the same time. And many who have trouble believing in God because of the problem of evil are basically saying the very same thing that David is saying here. They have a very orthodox complaint. God, if you're in control and you're sovereign and you're good, why this? Why pain and suffering? God, if you're in control of all things, why am I in pain? Now, let me give you just four quick things, and this is more for the insider. I'm trying to kind of hatch it down, some of the objections of the problem of evil. And if you're here this morning and you're committed to disbelieving, I'm not going to satisfy you, and no question, no answer will. But I hope that it could be a little bit less of a hurdle, that that hurdle might not be quite so high. But here, I want to talk just to the Christian, just to those who are committed to faith, And are committed to understanding what this psalm means. Because there's a reason behind our lament. And there's a reason that we need to learn to lament. Let me give you just four quick things. We need to learn to lament so that we can despair of this world. Pain is a window. It's a necessary reminder into the, the truth that this world is not all there is. We need to see... This world can't ultimately satisfy. Broken hearts can't be mended by broken things. And if it weren't for pain, if it weren't for suffering, we would not get that. We would be content just to live here and to cast God off as just some wish. We need to learn to lament, learn to cry so that we can despair of this world. We need also to learn to lament so that we can cling to God There are two poles in these Psalms of Lament. There's God and there's the enemy. There's the protagonist and the antagonist. And you can't have a story without both. You can't have a good drama without those two things competing against one another. We would love to have God without the enemy. We would love to have Christianity without the antagonist, right? In the Western world, we live in the most affluent and the most safe Environment that has ever existed in the history of humanity, and also the most secular. The most affluent and the most safe is also, has become in Europe, is becoming in the United States, the most secular places in the world. But where strife reigns, where disorder and chaos and pain is the order of the day, faith reigns. The gospel explodes in those places. Now, Nietzsche would say, well, of course, because what? Religion is the opiate of the masses. They have to have religion because their life is so terrible. But David says, no, no, it's not that at all. It's just that the gospel makes more sense in those places. It's easier to understand a God who redeems when you are in utter need, daily need of redemption. Friends, the gospel doesn't work in a vacuum. We can't pray this prayer. We can't pray this psalm. We can't pray 70 of the psalms without there being brokenness in the world and in our lives. Thirdly, we need to learn to lament in order to get, to grasp, to understand the gospel more fully. That it's not simply a message of individual salvation, but it's a promise of God remaking the whole world. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes uh, to Ephesus and said, before the foundation of the world, I set my affection on you. That's God speaking. I set my affection on you. I chose you before anything went wrong. I loved you and chose to redeem you. Try to get your head around that. That's incredibly difficult. But before anything went wrong, God chooses to place his love and affection on you. There's an aspect of God that Adam and Eve, before they decided to go against God and be redeemed, didn't grasp. There's a passage in 1 Peter that talks about the relationship that humanity has with God, that they understand, that we understand things about God, about His character, that the angels long to look into. In other words, they don't get what it's like to be redeemed. They don't get what it's like to run away from God and then be brought back and restored. That there's an aspect that we can't understand about God that we don't see unless we are redeemed. And then, fourthly and finally, why do we need to learn to lament, learn to cry? Is that it gives compassion. We need to learn to lament even when there's no immediate pain or danger in our own lives. We need to do this so that we can remember that the world is a painful place and that there are people who are presently hurting that the Bible calls us into, into their lives. Walter Storff in this book, Lament for a Son, said, The Stoics of antiquity said, Be calm, disengage yourself, neither laugh nor weep. But Jesus says, Be open to the wounds of the world. Mourn humanity's mourning weep over humanity's weeping, be wounded by humanity's wounds, but do so in good cheer that a day of peace is coming. David prays, light up my eyes. God, tell me the story again. God, remind me of the gospel. Remind me of the hope that you have said is assured. Help me believe your promises again in the midst of of this trial. Help me. Help my unbelief, David prays. He goes from disorientation to supplication or prayer, and now to affirmation. Do you see the last two verses? But I will trust. In the midst of this, I will trust in your unfailing love. There's an abrupt change between verses 4 and 5. It's caused many commentators to posit some length of time between when David wrote the first four verses and then he amended or appended the the last two verses to that poem. It's possible, but it's not necessary, because what has happened between those verses is not that David personally has triumphed. It's not that his faith has grown so strong. It's that he has reset his vision on the object of his faith. David reaches out for God's pledged love. He says, God, you have bound yourself to me. You have promised to never leave me. He it's not a diminishment of sensation. It's not a diminishment of the fact that David feels anguish. It's not a denial of suffering, but it's a resetting of his vision on what he knows to be true. He rejoices in salvation not just an end to personal tragedy, but to tragedy itself. That's the gospel story. That's salvation that we hope for. It's not that my story will end well. It's that the whole story will end well. It's not that my tragedy will end, but that tragedy itself will end. That's the salvation that David is clinging to. In the midst of chaos, God is bringing order. And he says here, God has been good to me. And that translation is about as good as you can do in English, but in the underlying Hebrew, it's what they call a perfective of confidence. It's a, it's a prophetic perfect, prophetic past. He's saying something in the past tense because he knows that in the future God will be just as good to him, that his promises will stand just as sure as he has experienced thus far. So he puts it in the past tense. English can't quite capture that. But what he is saying is that he will be good to me. He will bountifully deal with me. His redemption will exceed my expectation. It will exceed my imagination. This is another aspect of the Bible's answer to the problem of pain, is that the gospel is better than the pain is bad. The verse that, passage I had you read earlier in the liturgy 2 Corinthians 4 says this light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. It's not to diminish your pain. It's not to say, don't be sad, don't be sorrowful because one day a future redemption is coming. Remember, David, honest about brokenness, honest about sorrow, but at the same time, in the midst of grief, there is hope. In the midst of suffering, there is a promise of redemption. The gospel is better than the pain is bad. That's hard to believe. And yes, that's the, that's the point of this psalm. But God says, just wait. Just you wait until you see with your eyes what is coming. Now, let's conclude this way. I, um, I love the NPR uh, music music. Site. They're always introducing new, new music, and, and I generally like their taste. But they had this um, thread not too long ago where they asked um, readers or ask listeners to uh, give impressions of famous singers' voices. So, you know, Bob Dylan, Elvis Presley, uh, so forth. They would um, just write short little paragraphs on what their impression, not on a certain song, but just their voice itself. And I love this because they, one uh, listener said of Roy Orbison's voice, It's like pain and hope in a dead heat. It's like pain and hope in a dead heat. Isn't that how we often feel in life? That pain and suffering and doubt and worry and fear, and then on the other hand, hope and belief are both vying for our hearts. They're wrestling with our attention. They're wrestling with who's going to win out. And that's the case in the world as well which will win? They're fighting for supremacy. Pain and hope are in a dead heat, it seems to us. And what the gospel says, and what we're to conclude from this, is is not that simply the emotion of hope wins out, but that the object of faith wins out. The object of hope triumphs. The last verses that we read of David's affirmation, it doesn't mean that he's all of a sudden perfectly happy and satisfied or even that the trial is over. It's just that his sight has changed. He's reset his vision. Now, friends, this is the unique thing about Christianity that no other worldview, no other religion has. It's the only place, it's the only religion, it's the only faith that claims that God entered into, world, into the world, that God came down and entered into our suffering and into our pain. So whatever reason he has for allowing evil to continue, it can't be that he doesn't love you. It can't be that he does not have a good purpose. It's tremendously different and tremendously personal as we wrestle through the decidedly difficult things of life, believing that the reason I'm going through this is not that God has forgotten me, it's that this world is broken, and that one day, one day, God will redeem it all. God can be trusted because he's invested in the story, because he himself suffers on our behalf. Now, let me read you one of the, one of the things that we learned in seminary is not to read long quotes, but since I'm reading it from my seminary professor, I'd... going to do it and maybe he'll give me a pass. But this is from Frank James writing now five years later about his brother's death in a recent magazine interview. He says, I find myself drawn to God. He is more mysterious and complicated than I had thought, but I can't seem to shake loose from him. There seems to be a kind of gravitational pull toward God. I'm not the first to notice this in the midst of pain and suffering that there is a gravitational pull in Psalm 13, for instance, David calls out in anguish to God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's on the surface paradoxical that David would seek to embrace a God who hides himself when he needs him most. But I sense that David had a different kind of relationship with God, one that many Christians do not understand. It's more honest and it's more mysterious than they have been led to believe. It's a kind of relationship where simplistic spiritual formulas and insipid cliches have no place. There's a spiritual dynamic at work in David's relationship with God that combines a brutal honesty with a grasping faith. It's a relationship where disappointment can be juxtaposed with hope. This does not exactly make sense to me, and I'm not sure that I even like it. But I have found that there is a divine gravity that pulls us towards God, even when our hearts are broken. Many Christians read the Nicene Creed with its marvelous stanza, on the third day he rose again. They're familiar with the story of Christ's dead body being placed in the tomb on Friday, but on Sunday it was full of glorious new life. Jesus was again breathing and walking in and among his astonished disciples. It was hard to believe, but there before them all, Jesus stood. The tomb was empty and death had been defeated. So, what does the empty tomb of Jesus have to do with the snowy tomb of my brother Kelly? Everything. Kelly confessed, as I do, the Nicene Creed that we look for the resurrection of the dead. Over the centuries, And amid enough tears to fill an ocean, so many of us have had to bury our loved ones in tombs. There is a profound connection between the empty tomb of Jesus and the snowy tomb of my brother. The empty tomb of Jesus was a promise that one day Kelly, too, would rise from his grave. God is very aware, friends, of our pain and our suffering, and he doesn't stand far off. He's not callous toward it. He doesn't expect us to deal with it on our own. But he walks into our pain. He walks into our suffering and says, let me undergo suffering on your behalf. He understands evil because he let it do its worst to him in order to defeat it. So that you and I could one day have it defeated for us. So that just like Jesus, you and I can rise from the dead victorious, Difficult to believe? Yes. Beautiful? Yes. Take hold of that promise, especially if you're in a moment of suffering in, a, in the midst of grief, in the midst of questioning. Take hold of that promise. Pray this prayer. Wrestle with God. He's glad to have you walk into him, not having firmly established faith, but having questions. Put your hope, put your trust and faith in God and Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us people that understand that the world is hurting and that we would be willing to walk into that hurt, walk into that pain with the hope of the gospel, even when, even if we are still struggling with it ourselves. Father, give light to our eyes. Tell us the story again. Lord, I pray, nonetheless, that in the midst of a congregation where many, are hurting now. Many are suffering. Many are looking for work. I pray that you would end that suffering now in a, in a real, tangible, concrete way. But Father, not at the expense of letting us hope in you. Let, would you do both? Would you help us to claim the hope of the gospel and to lean into your love in the midst of suffering? And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.